Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.07 on a wonderful Saturday evening. Great to be with you here on News Talk 830 along with one of my absolute favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Schultz. How are you? I am doing well. And how about you this evening? Pretty good. How is the garden progressing? The garden looks very, very nice. Right. And for I those was... of you who don't know, we've talked about it before. Uh, Professor David Schultz is a wonderful gardener and has is able to coax the absolute most out of a relatively small area of of land in in your home. You don't have a huge yard, but yet you are producing just a lot. I do produce a lot. Today I harvested about two pounds of asparagus out of my asparagus. Are you serious? Wow. Pretty good. Finally, we're getting the combination of rain and warmth. Um, um, So it was a good good harvest, and so I'm happy with that. And I think I'm in the export business now for rhubarb. Um, I've got more rhubarb than I know what to do with. Wow. Okay, so in other words, you're... It, things are going well. Things are going very well. Okay. If we had this conversation two weeks ago, I would have been grumbling like most of the farmers in Minnesota who I know right. are who are very worried about this season. But but things are looking pretty good out there right now. Well, we certainly hope the farmers are doing uh, better as well. And we can talk about some of the tariffs uh, as well. But I do want to start out by asking you about Robert Mueller's statement. Uh, because I watched it as it was happening, and I was thinking, well, it's it's sort of what the report is saying, but it's sort of not what William Barr is saying, but it's sort of – and then it, all I could think of was it's sort of this, it's sort of that, and then at the end of the day, that gives everybody plenty of room to argue about it. Yes, it it is what the report said, but – more so. And what I mean by that, when we talked about the report, um, I don't know, several weeks ago on this show here, you know, I think I suggested that the report is, is kind of contradictory in a variety of ways. But the starting point for understanding the report is part two, page one, um, where Robert Mueller says he accepted the basic position of the Justice Department going back to the 1970s in Nixon that a sitting president cannot be criminally indicted. And so that that was a, that was an assumption. Whether we agree with it or not, there's all, all right. kinds but, of but, arguments. But he, he literally said it would be unconstitutional Correct. to Correct. indict a sitting president. That's right. And, and, and I, I mean, is that the way it is? Is that unconstitutional? Not all of us think that. Um, okay, because I mean that, that. My question was like, well, then why are we going through this if we can't, you know, if there can't be an indictment? If that was ever a question, because I thought that was one of the things, and and that's what Republicans are saying. Well, listen, there was no indictment, so there, therefore, you know, he's cleared. Which you know, people will disagree with that, but but he, there's no indictment. But Mueller's saying from the start, from the get go. He, he believed that, that the president could not be indicted. Right. And the reason why is that back in 1973, 74, 
when the special prosecutor was investigating Richard Nixon for, for the issues surrounding Watergate, there was a Justice Department um, legal memorandum or Office of Legal Counsel, I can't remember which it was now, uh, and their conclusion was that a sitting president could not be indicted and the only remedy for criminal behavior for a sitting president was the impeachment process. So we're doing a little bit of history here. So right. That, so as a result of that, Leon Jaworski, who was then the special prosecutor, um, when he secures a grand jury indictment for several other Watergate figures, grand jury comes back and names Nixon unindicted co-conspirator. That's where that phrase comes from, because there was a belief that... And, and who, who was the grand jury? Yeah, the grand okay. jury basically concluded on, on Jaworski's recommendation, president can't be indicted. Um, therefore, they listed him as unindicted co-conspirator. That gets turned over information over to the House Judiciary Committee. Um, they then eventually vote for articles of impeachment. Move us 20 years later, there is, with the Kenneth Starr, who's special prosecutor, um, there are two different memoranda. One of them is, a, again, a Justice Department memoranda that says that even though Bill Clinton, President Clinton, had committed perjury, and he did, he committed perjury, um, the conclusion was sitting president could not be um, constitutionally indicted. Um, however, there's a third memorandum that came out in 2000 um, by um, a law professor um, who drafted it for Kenneth Starr that said, no, um, we think, or rather I think, that the law has shifted. Anyhow, the point being is that it's a contestable question, but the official position, that if a president can be indicted, I should say, but the official position still is for the Justice Department, a sitting president cannot be criminally indicted uh, if there are concerns about criminal behavior with the President of the United States, that gets turned over to Congress to consider as part of impeachment. So Mueller said that in his report and essentially said that, um, was it, was it two, whatever day it was this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever yes. day it was this week, um, and made the same point here. And so first, he makes it clear in saying that I could not indict the President of the United States, but then he takes two further steps. One of them is to say that um, that uh, we also didn't have um, conclusive evidence, or I think his phrase was, we didn't have sufficient evidence to conclude that um, the Trump campaign or the Trump himself um, had aided and abetted um, um, or conspired, rather, I should say, with the Russians to interfere with the elections. Mm -hmm. He didn't say um, there was no evidence, um, said insufficient. And then two, on the obstruction of justice charge, uh, both he said in his report, and he was even more emphatic this time, is he, in his, in his um, press conference, he said, um, we um, did not, uh, we couldn't indict him, but we also could not exonerate him. Um, and that's, that's critical because what he's saying there is that um, we probably had enough evidence, um, um, and it went through quite a few instances here, of where this might have been obstruction of justice, but guess what? We can't indict him for obstruction of justice because he's sitting president of the United States. Right. Um, and that's and that's the takeaway that a lot of people had. Yeah. Um, and and the result of that is sort of a fury uh, by progressives who had already been calling for the impeachment process. 
uh, to get underway, saying, let's have at it. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, you know, we had a story on, and I don't think it was at the top of this hour. I may, I may be incorrect, but it was, I think, perhaps the 7 o'clock hour from CBS in which uh, you had booze for Nancy Pelosi yeah. because of her failure to push for impeachment of the president. Uh, and you have Republicans saying, hey, it's over. It's over. And, and you know, I do think that, that there are a lot of people whose eyes are glazing over with this nuanced language back and forth. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, the, you know, this, this is a tough one because part of what Mueller's message was to, um, um, to, to Congress was do your job, whatever you think your job is supposed to be, because I, I can't indict the president of the United States. So now this turns it over to the House of Representatives um, in terms of what they want to do. And this is a tough one, because on the one hand, there, there seems to be, if you read the report, um, numerous grounds to suggest um, impeachment. And, and, and just for clarification, there are three the Constitution outlines three factors or three different situations for impeachment, um, treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. For the sake of argument here, we won't even talk about treason or bribery. I mean, those, those don't seem to be the issues here. The question is, what is high crime and misdemeanor? And I've written on this um, and a few others, that high crime and misdemeanors doesn't have to be a a, 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 a felony. A, a felony, or doesn't have to really be a crime. Um, it's a term that goes back to, to England, you know, back when we were still, you know, part of England at one point. And it could be nonfeasance, malfeasance. It could be um, real crime. And it's, it's really a judgment call by Congress. And, and so now where the pressure is building is should Congress, um, as part of its checks and balances, um, use its impeachment power um, as as a as a way of controlling the president. And Pelosi's answer is sort of twofold. You know, one answer is that you know we're you know even if we impeach in, in the House, um, we're not going to get a conviction in the Senate because it takes two thirds vote in the Senate for conviction. Um, Republicans aren't going to vote for in, impeachment, and therefore. Um, you know, or, or for conviction on impeachment. Therefore, it makes no sense for us to do that. And with that, I think she's concerned that that if um, there's an impeachment process and the president is exonerated, a it strengthens his base and strengthens his hand that in fact he's done nothing wrong. Uh, and I think she wants. Or, or to else, hang. if he's if he's impeached and then you know acquitted by the Senate, it strengthens his hand. Exactly. Exactly. So, so she. Which is what would happen, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty likely that um, that at this point, barring something that changes, that if they were to impeach in the, in the House, um, I don't see how they get the two thirds vote in the Senate on a conviction. Um, and right now, I think Pelosi's position. It's probably more realistic, although there are some people on principle are saying House has to do its job. Right. Um, and, you know, going back to Richard Nixon, who resigned, he was not impeached. But was the handwriting on the wall because Republicans were lining up for impeachment? Correct. And people forget that is that it's a very different era that was less polarized. Um, if I remember correctly, because I remember being glued to my television set um, watching the 
the House judiciary proceedings in 74, and there were, I think, three articles of impeachment. They were all around like 26, 7, something like that. They were bipartisan in terms of, of them. But what's important also is that some of the most notable people um, during that process um, were, were Republicans. Senator Howard Baker, a Republican, was in the, from Tennessee, was in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's famous for one, famous for the person who said, what did the president know and what, what did the president know and when did he know it? I mean, there, there was very powerful bipartisan support um, that the president um, 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 needed to face justice. And in fact, the reason why he resigned after the, the Senate or the House Judiciary voted on impeachment, didn't even go to the full House, is that Republicans, both in the House and Senate, went to him and said, um, your support's gone. It's just not there. Versus now, um, you've got one House Democrat. That's House I mean, Republican. Excuse me, House Republican, and and I don't see right now any Senate Republicans um, willing to um, um, vote on a conviction for articles of impeachment. Right, and and obviously that the 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 Senate is controlled by the Republicans, and the one the lone uh, Republican. Uh, in the House is a representative Congressman Justin Amash, who's from Michigan. Uh, and that's that's obviously not going to do it. Well, listen, um, we do have to take a quick break. Uh, more with David Schultz after this. You are listening to News Talk 830. It is 823 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz, we were talking about um, the calls for impeachment, uh, Democrats getting in a fight in California over the uh, Speaker Pelosi's a refusal uh, so far to actually uh, begin impeachment proceedings. Obviously, she could do it. Um, one of the things, obviously, this is all taking the backdrop against uh, the presidential election, which is really not that far away. When, when you think about it, we are now in June. And isn't the first straw poll in August? That's right. And we wow. We have the first straw Two poll. months from now. Yeah, so we're, we're just talking about a few months now. And then on top of – so that's so – that's, the way I describe um, our presidential election process, like when I'm overseas, is to say we've got about three different components to it. We've got the the the, the general election, of course, you know, which comes after the conventions. We've got the primary caucus season. Then we've got this kind of this pre, almost preseason, and and we're still in the preseason. But by the time we get to the um, on the Iowa straw poll, you know, which is going to be. Um, in um, you know, you know, in just a few months, then we're really in the middle of things. That straw poll will probably weed a few people out um, at this point, and then we have the actual Iowa caucuses, which is really the official start that comes. I think, if I remember correctly, February first, I think it is, um, of 2020. Um, so we're we are by, by math here. Um, a couple months from from let's say the you know again you know an, another phase and then less than what what what's it like nine months or something like that till the real real start of the caucuses. How mu- and obviously a lot can change. Right, a lot can change. Um, let me just look up uh, Iowa caucuses twenty twenty uh, February third. 
Monday, February 3rd. Oh, February 3rd. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that is the first nominating contest. Um, I did want to ask you, because one of the things that, that was in the news uh, when the president was over in Japan is that there were lots of comments um, quoting Kim Jong-un as, as calling uh, Joe Biden a low IQ individual. And then the president was talking about Kim Jong-un or whatever. And I've heard, you know, the president has referenced Joe Biden quite a bit um, in in a negative vein. And every time I hear that, I can't help but think that the that President Trump sounds like he thinks Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. Yeah, I think he does. Or sort of, or there's actually two things I want to comment about this. First is, um, I don't know about you, I, in a dispute between a, um, an, a totalitarian ruler um, and the United States, where he is calling um, a public servant or a former vice president a low He's got IQ a lot person, of negative, a lot of yeah. negative things. Generally, I would hope that the president of the United States would take the side of 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 the vice president of the United States. You know, there's, you know, and, and the even it's a different party. Yeah, yeah, that you would think country comes above party. Um, at least that's at least that's, that's the book that I read at one point. Um, so that's the first point. But the second thing here is, yeah, right now the polls are suggesting that that Biden has an enormous lead uh, over uh, many of his other challengers. But let's take this back a few years ago. Take us back to 2008, probably about this time Actually, 2007, let us say, um, um, Hillary Clinton probably had about a 40-point lead over Barack Obama. And take us back to about this time um, four years ago, Clinton probably had a 50-point lead over um, Bernie Sanders in most places. And Donald Trump was was probably way back in the pack. There you and go. Pe- and people like um, um, former Governor Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, would have been riding high in the list. And so polls at this time, in terms of predictors, are highly, highly inaccurate. And people should always remember that about polls. Polls are snapshots in time. Um, they're not predictive tools. And lots can change. Because um, I think at the end of the day, what? Campaigns matter. Um, messages matter. Uh, ability, as you know, this you're in the you're in this business here. The ability to work with the media and reporters, all that matters. Absolutely. Um, focusing on Joe Biden, though, uh, the fact that the president has gone so much does this in, in such a negative way is willing to do that. I mean, it, it to me it, it suggests that the president really thinks that he is. Well, and he is the front runner. I think you have to say that um, as well. And and I just wonder, um, you know, when you look at the Biden campaign, there was a very interesting news story on CBS that talked about a a Joe Biden appearance. I can't remember where it was, but I thought the most interesting thing about it was that it pointed out that it was actually his and it was this was in within the last week that it was his first public campaign appearance in 10 days and that while other candidates uh, including a whole host of them, uh, almost all of the rest of them are doing multiple appearances a day. Joe Biden is doing it, is campaigning at a much slower pace. Mm-hmm. Can he get away with that? Not much longer. He's, again, he's, this is like late fourth quarter in a game and sitting on a lead. Um, 
And that's what he's doing at this point, trying to what, act presidential, sit on a lead, um, or maybe fundraise and not engage at this point. And I think his strategy is, is not to really um, talk issues so that it becomes the, the um, what I'm looking for here. He is anything to anybody who doesn't like Donald Trump, and he doesn't have to make any kind of policy commitments. But at some point, and, and help me out here, CNN, I think, soon is going to start their round of debates, are they not? Yes. Yeah, and I'm assuming Biden's going to have to participate in those. I mean, Right, yeah. And so, so now we're going to start to see something interesting in terms of how he handles himself in these debates and how he distinguishes himself. But yeah, he's pretty much, I think, resting on name recognition, resting on... Which he has. <laughs> connect, ...connections to Obama... Um, a whole bunch of things, and he hasn't had to work very hard yet. And, and again, I think this was the problem that Clinton faced both in 08 and 16, was she was resting on huge name recognition and belief she had significant advantages, and it worked in the first case to her peril in terms of what? Not getting the nomination. And the second, again, I mean, we started seeing um, – her losing states, you know, to Bernie Sanders or are winning very narrowly in ways that a few months before she had 50 point leads. Right. Well, even there was even a poll um, that was done uh, by the Star Tribune in the fall of 2015 that had her up by 30 points here in Minnesota. And she ended up losing the caucuses by about 30 points or 20 points. Yeah, it was two to one. I think yeah. it was like 65 or 66, yeah. almost two to one. Yeah, I mean, she, she was shellacked here. I mean, it was, right. it was pretty bad. Yeah, so, so Biden is, 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 again, let's say is resting on laurels. The other thing that I think is fascinating right now, if you look at the focus of, of Biden's campaign, um, it is, I'm not Trump and we have to beat Trump. Now, I'm skeptical whether just simply being against Trump is enough. And, and maybe it'll work out. I don't know. But what I'm seeing here is something really interesting, that Trump and Biden are feeding off of one another. Trump, or rather Biden, is, is, is criticizing um, um, Trump. And every time Trump tweets or says something, um, Biden's able to sort of say, well, look at that. At the same right. time, Trump is assuming that Biden's going to be his challenger, and he's attacking him. So it's 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 a um, um, I don't know. I hate to, I hate to be a psychologist here. It sounds like a dysfunctional relationship, doesn't it? <laughs> but you know something, the president President Trump's got to be going. Hey, listen, this worked for me last time. It did. It, you know, it, it worked beautifully. It did. And he's doing the same playbook but, this time as he did last time, and and right now it might work. Now again, it's it's. Um, it worked in many ways in 18, um, 2018 to simply just being against um, um, Trump, although the Democrats were talking health care, too. So I think Biden is going to have to um, not just be against Trump, uh, but also to start to have to, have to articulate um, some issues and some stances, uh, because, again, as I've said a thousand times, narrative matters, um, right. message matters, and he has to be for something 
um, if he wants to be able to rally people, too. Okay. All right, folks. We are chatting with Professor David Schultz. We are overdue for a break for weather. When we come back, we'll break down some of the other candidates, uh, including some that have made appearances here, including Beto O'Rourke, who I did get a chance to interview, as I mentioned earlier in this show, uh, and also talk about Senator Amy Klobuchar. But let's take a break right now. We need to give you we need to pay some bills and we need to give you some weather. It is 838 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with uh, Professor David Schultz. Uh, we're chatting about some of the presidential candidates. We eventually want to end up talking about uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar. Uh, but let me just ask you, since we, we talked about Joe Biden, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, he certainly is a lot further ahead right now than he was uh, four years ago. Yes, he is. But what's interesting about it is that you're right. He's he's in dramatically better shape. I think he's. I can't remember now if Biden has now raised more money than him, um, or if Sanders is still in the lead. I think Biden has surpassed him now. Um, although Bernie Sanders is raising more money from smaller donors, but but he's he's first or second in fundraising. He's second in the polls. Um, um, not as far back as he was at this time four years ago, but he has dropped quite a bit yes. in the last month. I mean, he was pretty close to Biden about a month ago, and I think he's dropped about 10 points in the polls in about a month. Um, Elizabeth Warren um, has gone up a little bit. Um, so you would sort of put, at this point, I would think Biden, Sanders, Warren, and Harris as probably as probably the um, the top four candidates right now. Right, and and that's you're absolutely right when you look at these polls. And I've got uh, if you're interested in looking at the polls, and, and there's a new poll out. I mean, some of you might be thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is too early." There's there's a new poll out almost every single day, either from one of the key states, uh, or like such as Iowa or New Hampshire or um, even Florida. Uh, or else just, you know, overall in presidential approval or just, you know, a national polls. Uh, and Joe Biden is way ahead. Uh, and they used to be much more closely bunched together. Of course, that was before Joe Biden officially announced. Uh, but as I mentioned earlier, what, what's so interesting about Joe Biden is he's really not hitting the campaign trail uh, with the intensity and the frequency that, that some of these other candidates are. But he is significantly ahead of Bernie Sanders. Interesting, too, that they are really basically the same age. And that's something that I, I think is going to be interesting to see play out. I think I think Bernie Sanders reads a little older, but maybe that's just me. I mean, they're about literally virtually about the same age. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how, how far that goes. Um, and Elizabeth Warren, you're right, in most of the polls – isn't there, but she's significantly further back. It's like I'm just looking at this poll from um, Morning Consult, Biden 38, Sanders 20, Warren 9, right. Harris 7. Um, Elizabeth Warren is, you know, the, the, the thing I can't get past Elizabeth Warren, and maybe it's because I have talked to uh, a number of people I know who are Native American who still find it very difficult uh, to get past Elizabeth Warren's claims of – uh, Native American ancestry in um, major sort of employment statements and that kind of thing. Uh, they just feel that uh, she was trying to take advantage of a very um, tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of Native American ancestry in order to perhaps advance her own career. She has, of course, denied that. 
But uh, there is anger and frustration amongst people who are Native American that I've talked to mm-hmm. uh, who think she's, you know, was trying to game the system. Yeah, I think that hurts her. And what's unfortunate is, uh, you know, going out on a limb here, of all the candidates who are running this year, uh, Warren, whether you agree with him or not, um, is talking very serious public policy. Um, she's got policies on just about everything. Um, she's very, very bright. Um, she's very articulate. And for people who are actually interested in, in sort of the real policy aspect of the presidency, in many ways she reminds me of Hillary Clinton four years ago who had tons of – I mean, she had policy positions on everything also, um, and, and I'll give her incredible credit for that also. Um, but, but, yeah, I think Warren's facing that challenge. I think the other challenge this year, and this is across the board, which I find fascinating, if my recollection is correct, there's, I think, five – is it five women who are declared or six women who are declared candidates for president of the United States who are Democrats? Is it five or six? Well, it, it's, I guess depending on how you – I think that there's 28 in all. But, yeah. yes, you, you've got you know Warren, Harris, uh, Klobuchar, uh, Gabbard, Gillibrand, uh, yeah. um, who's not even showing up. In it. She's not even included in some of these polls yeah. that I'm looking at. Right. Um, so, so, so we have, we have four – we have at least four female candidates. When I look at how much media time and exposure they're getting – they're not getting a lot, um, and and I think one of the um, stories that's going to be told um, with this campaign um, sometime next year or maybe after 2020 is going to be asking to what extent um, the 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 women in the campaign didn't get um, fair coverage, much in the same way there was a criticism four years ago that the media gave um, disproportionate amount of, of free media exposure to, um, to Donald Trump. And so that, that, that I think, is, 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 is a legitimate issue right now to think about. Right. Um, the other um, candidate that, that is doing very well, and it, well, let, let me just give out, like, the Florida Democratic presidential right. primary. This is, you know, this is actually from about uh, 10 day, well, ten days ago, uh, Biden 39, Sanders 12, Warren 12, uh, Buttigieg 9, Harris 7, O'Rourke 5, Castro 2, Booker 1, Klobuchar 1, Yang 1, Gillibrand 1, Moulton 1, Gravel 1. So, so it's, it, it's, it's, there are a lot of candidates, folks. Yeah. But um, how about Kamala Harris? Because she seems to be doing, relatively speaking, well. Yeah, she is. She's doing relatively well. Um, she's done very well fundraising. She has, I think, an advantage that many people don't realize at this point is that when we were talking earlier this evening about the fact that the Iowa caucuses are, we think what we said February third. Yes, February third. Um, on the on the day the Iowa caucuses start. Early voting for California's primary starts. Now, traditionally, California's primary has been in June. Um, for the most part, by the time we get to June, California doesn't matter. Right. Um, and California said, the heck with that. We, we want to matter. matter. We want to matter. <laughs> and they're big. We know that they're the, they're the most populous state in the country. So they've moved their primary to March 3rd. Texas has a primary that day. I think there are several other states. I think it's part of Super Tuesday. And 
early voting will take place in California starting on the Iowa caucus day. The reason why I mention that is because Senator Harris comes from from California. She has um, some very important advantages there in terms of name recognition um, that that even if she's not doing that well in the polls right now, um, if she can um, do, let's say, okay, let's say a third or so, third or fourth showing in Iowa, um, then we're going to come up to New Hampshire, let's say uh, a third or fourth showing there, but then either win big um, um, or, well, she's going to have to win California, I'm going to say that. In the world of politics, her home state, if she doesn't win her home state, she's declared a loser. But I'm assuming she'll, if she wins California, she's suddenly a major player in the campaign. Right. And that, that timing of that is something that obviously we're going to have to watch. Um, interesting to look at the two younger men, although Pete Buttigieg, the, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, is considerably younger. He's still in his 30s. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, I think, looks looks younger, but he's, I think, 46 or so, so he's almost 10 years older. Um, they both are, are still sort of tracking in that middle sort of, you know, single digits, but sort of in the upper single digits. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with them. Uh, Beto O'Rourke did actually come to Minnesota. This was a number of weeks ago, and I did get a chance to interview him. He was very personable, very charismatic. Uh, had a packed house on an absolutely terrible night. I mean, the, the weather was awful at, at Edison High School. And really, it, it was standing room only. Um, there were several hundred people there. Um, he took pictures with anybody who wanted a picture taken with him. Um, I found him very charismatic. Um, he was very knowledgeable about, and I was talking to, I interviewed um, Chris Riemenscheider, who is the uh, Star Tribune music critic who's written a you know sort of the definitive book on First Avenue, right. which is the source for the Minnesota history it's a good exhibit. Book, by the way. It's a very good book. It's a very very good book, and um, uh, I was saying how, how incredibly interested Beto O'Rourke was in the Minnesota music scene and how knowledgeable he was. Uh, but I, I I found him to be very charismatic. Uh, Buttigieg has not been here, and I was a little bit surprised that that uh, O'Rourke came here because after all, you got this is Amy Klobuchar's home state. Mm-hmm. But um, he was there, but yet they seem to have trouble breaking through. Buttigieg had a moment where he seemed to be surging, and now he's sort of a little bit kind of hanging around eh, the upper eights, nines, you know, pulling right in there. Right. Yeah. No, you're right. I I mean, a couple things. First off, I mean, some listeners may know that earlier in my career, I taught in Texas for many years. And so I have a lot of students in Texas and they've, you know, former students in Texas and they've they've met O'Rourke. And the exact same thing that you've just saying here, personable, but they also said that he he knows music really well, too. He knows music really well. (laughs) well, Yeah. Um, So, so yeah. So the description's exactly on score there. Um, But uh, it's. I, I think there's a couple things going on here. You know, M- Minnesota is still um, a st- caucus state, even though we have a, um, a primary. You know, we still we still do caucuses, and it's still going to be about still organizing people. But again, remember, it's a primary. We're going to have a primary next, you know, next year. But I think they're looking at um, how you can use the caucus system to organize people to get them out for the polls for the presidential primary. And I think for some of them, they're looking at, well, listen, even though this is Klobuchar's state, um, that it's still possible 
um, to um, to pick up some votes to maybe um, do a surprise here again, much in the same way that guess what? Um, when Bernie Sanders right, Clinton, it, it was a big it was a big boost to his campaign that he won Minnesota so decisively. Exactly, that was yeah. a big deal. And and I, I I will I mean I thought the crowd was very impressive that that came out for O'Rourke. And as I said, it was. I mean, the weather could not have been worse. It was, it, you know, it was just awful out. And there was a big crowd there. Um, listen, we do have to take a quick break. Um, when we come back, I would like to sort of get your thoughts on uh, maybe some of these other candidates, but also Senator Amy Klobuchar and how she's doing. So let's keep it here. News Talk 830. All right. 852 in the Twin Cities. Some final thoughts with Professor David Schultz. Um, any other thoughts about the candidates that we have been talking about, the Democrats, and uh, also Senator Amy Klobuchar? Well, yes, but first, I just want to catch one last thing before we went on break here, is that we're going to have to talk about this a lot more later this year and early next year, that we are going to be going to a primary next year, as opposed to a caucus for picking our presidential nominee, which means it's going to be all day voting as opposed just to caucuses a night. So we're going to have to do a lot of work educating people about that at some point. Right, absolutely. Absolutely, because it's going to, it, the game changes at this point um, in terms of what it means. Okay, But, but Klobuchar... Um, um, and the other candidates at this point. Again, I, I talked a little bit about the women collectively who don't seem to be getting a lot of um, a press attention at this point. Um, but Klobuchar um, seemed, you know, you know, you know, seems to have stalled. Um, she um, and I think with Joe Biden entering the race, especially, has stalled. You know, because he occupies more of that centrist ground where she wants to be. So, so. And I look at the polls, unless you see something different at this point, she seems to be hovering around like that 1% or 2% you know, across national right. and most state polls. And so she has a challenge here coming up in terms of how does she break through. Right. And, and although there could be a moment, there could be an issue, uh, there could be something that occurs in the Judiciary Committee right. uh, that doesn't – and she's doing better than, than some others. She's doing better than Gillibrand, but she does not seem to have gotten through – Again, all of this is relative, um, the degree to which uh, Elizabeth Warren has. Right. And I think one of the challenges, and I wrote about this a while ago, is that uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren has an advantage, as does Kamala Harris, coming from major media markets in the United States. And even though I, I know, what are we like? The, like the, the Twin Cities, what like like the seventeenth largest media market? In yes, the, that's like the, I think it's about seventeenth or something like that. You know, we know we're, we're not Boston, we're not New York, we're not L.A., um, we're not D.C., and it's it's harder for for people from Minnesota to capture um, consistently the national media, you know, you know, um, on spotlight. And then there may just be something about Minnesota culture that candidates that do well here just don't go on to do well nationally because of a different set of, of skills, skill sets or, or, or media skill sets or something like that, you know, and, and, and that may be a challenge. But, yeah, so she's, she's kind of stalled. Now, other candidates out there, you know, who, who I thought, you know, were going to, you know, were going to do better, um, again, would have been, um, you know, Warren. I thought she was going to, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, leap and, and, and be near the top at this point. Um, I actually um, at one point thought that somebody like, I don't, I don't know. I thought Beto O'Rourke, was you're talking about before, you know, he took off initially really, really fast, but was kind of faded. So, so it's, 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 it's really hard to figure out. And I think 
with what, 28 people in the race at this point, uh, the field is carved up in terms of so many different small segments. I think it's hard for anybody. Plus, it's, again, it's so early, uh, and now we're right. going into what? Summer. How many people are thinking about presidential elections in the summer except the two of us? Right. But, uh, you know, I think, I think these people, though, are all working really, really yes, hard. And, and, and that's what's so striking is, is the energy and the effort that's going into this to try and, and create a moment or seize a moment or become a moment. And the person who did that in the last election cycle was Donald Trump. Yes. You know, and and it just he was the news was about him. The stories were about him. And, and you know, Hillary Clinton complained, complained bitterly about it. But it was just it was hard to to not focus on him. Right. And part of what Trump has is that what was it, 17 years on The Apprentice. Trump, for good or for bad, um, has good media skills. He understands how to use the social media. And as president, he's very effective at it. And I don't think right now any of the Democratic candidates are anywhere near as skilled either in media or social media skills as Trump. Right. Although we will have to see, you know, what what emerges and and if there is a breakout. And I think the debates will make a big difference. I think so, too, because I think, again, those are, I think the first ones are starting this month in June. So we're going to have the debates. Then, again, we talked before, we'll have the straw poll. My suspicion is well before the Iowa caucuses next year, we will have that Democratic field. Um, Winnowed down. I'd say to half. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, David Schultz, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Anytime. Thank you very much, and good night to all. All right. Take care. One only David Schultz, and I would also suggest that you uh, take a look at his blog, Schultz's Take. It's very, very good, always insightful. I want to thank uh, Susan Blanche, the producer of this show. She always does a fabulous job, and it's great to be able to work with her. Once again, as I, I mentioned earlier, she was one of the first producers I worked with here at uh, – CCO Radio. Also want to thank uh, Devin Marshall, who's kept us on the air and produced as well. Uh, And please tune in to WCCO-TV Sunday morning, uh, 6 a.m., 10.30 a.m. Governor Tim Walls will be one of the live guests in studio. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.